0: You can't keep doing this. You can't keep doing shitty things and then feel bad about yourself. Like, that makes it okay. You need to be better.
1: No, no, Bojack, just stop. You are all the things that are wrong with you. It's not the alcohol or the drugs or any of the shitty things that happened to you in your career or when you were a kid, it's you alright? It's you. Everybody, BoJack wants to get real. All I ever wanted was to be your friend. And you treat me like a big joke. You think I don't notice?
0: Why don't you like me? Tell me. Because I'm jealous. Of what? Of everything. Everything comes so easy for me. Oh, and it doesn't for you.
1: What more do what else could the universe possibly owe you?
0: I, I my want to feel good about the myself. Dead, the way you do. And I don't know I how. I don't know if I can. Deep um,
1: I, I guess my question is, do you... person that I am? The, the person in that book? its it not too late for me? Is it? It's, it's not too late?
0: Diane, I need you to tell me that it's not too late. I, I, I need you to tell me that I'm a good person. I know that I can be selfish and narcissistic and self-destructive, but underneath all that, deep down, I'm a good person and I need you to tell me that I'm good. Diane? Tell me, please, Diane, tell me that I'm good.
1: So first, I just want to thank you for making time to um, to come in and do this with me. I know with you know every time I've seen you, you've been fairly busy and and your, your time is limited. So thank you for coming on. Um, can you just quickly um, you know introduce yourself to our to what we call the squad out there? Yeah, and. Um, Give them a little bit of your background.
0: Yeah, basically my name is Jesse. I'm studying to be a psychologist. Uh, I will have finished that within a few months. I will not be licensed at that point, however. Um, I essentially have um, been someone who's been curious about the human mind and why people do what they do for a long time. And that, of course, led me to the work I'm doing now And, uh, most recently working with those who, uh, have substance, excuse me, substance abuse issues.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, you know, when I first met you, I just thought, oh, another counselor, but you've been, um, teaching our, your last codependency and communications class here, and it's been, the way you articulate, um, you know, perception, and the way addicts think, and and the way we kind of delve back into um, character defects or behavioral issues has been really fascinating to me. You know, I don't know if I told you this, but um, before I came here, I was going to, up at Cuesta College, I was taking um, intro to addiction, families in addiction, kind of getting courses done for a certification in addiction studies, and a lot of that information was fairly dry, but the way you've kind of, um, presented a lot of things have, has been really, um, really intriguing to me. Um, can I ask is, do you see any commonality with addicts in general, or do you think it's a case by case basis as to, you know, what causes their addiction or their mental states that lead them to turn to drugs to kind of cope with, with the lives that, you know, surround them?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that there's definitely something in common with many, many addicts, but it's hard because people become addicts from so many walks of life. Addiction does not know any race or age. Addiction seems to strike almost anybody, anywhere. So I guess the one thing I would say is... In common, what's, what's easier to define as in common is not where they started, but where they go to. So mm-hmm. w- I tend to encounter addicts once they've been involved with drugs for a very long time, and I find that common factors are the feeling that they need to hide themselves, perhaps to lie to other people, the feeling that they can't go to the cops anymore, or, or a teacher or a school, low self-esteem, uh, run-ins with the law, But it's kind of dodging the questions because these are things that happen once someone is already addicted. Yeah. So in terms of factors that lead someone to become an an addict, it's really hard to say because when you know someone is one, it is probably because they've told you or you can tell. It's extremely obvious. Mm -hmm. But that gives us an extremely biased sample because... What about people who work nine-to-fives, aren't in jail, don't have run-ins with the law, make a lot of money, and are completely addicted, such as Prince, who died? Yeah, like functioning addicts. Yeah, like functioning addicts. Mm -hmm. Or addicts who are so wealthy that they have people that force them to function. Yeah. So I don't think that there's... I think that if there's one thing in common, it's that addicts are in a lot of pain. Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons to be in a lot of pain, but if I had to shoot from the hip, I would say that the thing I find in common the most among addicts is trouble in their family, often with their parents, but it's hard because almost everybody has some trouble in their family. Yeah. So on a more down-to-earth level, I would say trouble in the family, but on a deeper level, it's unfortunately so... Complicated. If it were not, we would simply just predict who's going to be one and yeah. probably stave it off in advance.
1: Yeah. I mean, from what research I've done, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I've read that addiction is almost like 50% genetic predisposition and the other 50% is determined on their lack of skill to deal with traumatic uh, experiences in life and such like that, would, yeah. you, would you agree with that? or?
0: I don't know. I mean, if 50% is their lack of ability to cope, that in itself could be nature or nurture as yeah. well. And if the other 50% is a genetic predisposition to becoming an addict, that's a fascinating question that I think about all the time. Could somebody have everything going right for them in their life and mind and everything and pick up a beer for the first time? And completely lose it. The Simpsons actually makes this joke with Barney. They have a flashback and they show that he was, uh, I think, a medical doctor, a medical doctor astronaut, <laughs> and they're celebrating their first flight or something, and he takes one sip, and he's a complete drunk from then on. Yeah. So I don't really know what it, what's really causing it. Yeah. Uh, it's really hard to say how much genes have to do with it. If I had to guess, I would bet it has more to do with your, basically, nurture. And that's not just parents, but what you have experienced in your life. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to believe that there are people who have dropped anywhere in the world, to any life, to any family, would become an addict in all of those lifetimes. Yeah. But on the other hand, I'm being upfront when I say, I, I don't really know. It's almost impossible to know because we can't have someone experience two different lifetimes starting as the same person. You know? Yeah.
1: And it, I mean, I feel like it's got to start from somewhere. I know from my experience when I was just getting into college, I mean, I have alcoholism and addiction on my mom's side of the family. And my dad's, it's is not a, uh, apparent or, or present, but... I noticed, you know, first of all, the call the culture of college. You're getting a yeah. s- new sense of freedom for the first time, so pretty much everyone abuses it, but I would see select people fall into problems with drugs and alcohol, and some people just didn't, even though they dabbled. So it was always interesting, interesting to me, like, what is it about these people that caused them to um, have... lack of control over others
0: yeah I certainly there's a few things about this that I think are extremely interesting one is that you could have a parent who is an an, excuse me you could have a parent who is an alcoholic and you never see them drink Mm -hmm. and then you would say why did Tom start drinking to excess when his dad never showed him that never taught him that must be in his genes. Mm-hmm. But a counterpoint to that is that maybe Tom's father never shared his feelings with anybody and then would drink to compensate. Yeah. Tom didn't see him drinking, but he did see him not sharing his feelings. So sometimes I think a character like Tom will go to college and not share his feelings, let's say, and find that alcohol or drugs is just an amazing way to counterbalance it. So even if the parents don't set you up genetically to use, even if they don't, you don't ever know that they use or see it, they're giving you habits that can only be maintained usually if drugs are involved. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. that's a hard thing. Another thing is temperament, I do think, is somewhat inborn in us. So if you're a very nervous person,
1: mm-hmm. it's
0: going to be more attractive to you to drink. Um, and then another point I want to make real quick is just that the it's really hard to say how much temperament is a part of it, because not only might you be nervous or not, but the actual way a certain drug might affect your brain is surely going to be a little different than somebody else. Yeah. So we have such a complex matrix here of nature and nurture, personal narratives, you know, all this wisdom, but it's kind of frustrating because I don't know if we're ever going to be able to say this is exactly what it is.
1: Yeah, um, Yeah. The, actually you know, you make some good points that I never even thought about that they, there could be an infinite number of reasons that would turn someone to feel they need a substance to cope with with whatever is going on yeah. inside them emotionally. You know. Um, it's, it's it's funny, because we're sitting next to uh, the family roles, which I studied in, in college. Um, and I was wondering if you could just touch on that, like, maybe briefly talk about, you know, the roles and how they may play a part in an addictive family.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the role that the, the family is like a structure or a or a machine that um, needs to function. And so people usually take on different roles. I mean, here in front of us, we have the mascot, scapegoat, chief, chief enabler, family hero, lost, lost child. child. I'm not an expert in these particular terms, but we can't imagine how people get these titles, and these titles are implicitly reinforced in the family. And there can be subtle punishment for trying to withdraw from a particular role someone takes on. A perfect example is the concept in psychology of the identified patient.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Who, the patient in its Latin root just means the one suffering. So when we say identified patient, what we're referring to is, let's say that kid, I believe his name was Tom. Let's say he becomes a a severe alcoholic, and he goes to therapy, and the parents will probably say problem in the family is tom and only tom and that leads tom to believe that everything in his life was perfect and that it's only because he is weak or something that he alone has the problem Mm -hmm. it's not always the case it certainly is not always but oftentimes the identified patient is the result of what has been occurring in the family and it's possible that the identified patient is actually the healthiest member of the family because they're the one that realizes something is wrong and might be seeking help. Mm -hmm. So in summary, there's many roles that we can fall into in our family. It's hard to change roles once we've been put into one. And the concept that's the most interesting to me in the family is the identified patient who's the official unhealthy person, but they're usually the result of other unhealthy dynamics in the family that often began decades before they were born.
1: Yeah. You know, and when I started researching that, it was the most fascinating to me because from my experience with friends who were addicts or alcoholics who, you know, were raised in not the most functional family environment, the family surrounding him did kind of dehumanize and demonize the individual who was dealing with the issue and never ever recognizing the role they may have played or the yeah. part they played in it and I think that in turn is probably one of the biggest challenges that any addict must deal with facing their family you know being having projection on them like you have to do this yep. you have to change and you just need to st-. And, they, and a lot of it is they don't understand why they have um i guess it's in my opinion the disease of choice yes. you know and so they're doing all the i mean they in i what i've seen is i've seen friends do all this work to to attempt to change yet the environment with surrounding their family stays the same
0: yeah yeah a quick a quick disclaimer is that It is not always the case that the addict is reacting to an unhealthy family. Mm -hmm. It often seems to be the case. So I don't want people running, you know, hearing this and saying, Mm -hmm. it's for sure my parents' fault that I used it. may be, it may not be. Yeah. But let's assume that it is. In situations where at least the family has a lot to do with it, Mm -hmm. fault is a strong word, but the family has a lot to do with it, it's very tragic because I've treated people who get a lot better. And then they think, yay, my family is going to follow me. And not only does the family not get healthier, the family often, or rather sometimes, will turn on the addict
1: for getting healthier. Really?
0: They won't consciously say, how dare you get healthier. But let's say a family has problems in their marriage, and they always blame it on the identified patient, If the identified patient, if the son, let's say, gets healthy, what are they going to blame the marriage problems on now?
1: So it's like an avoidance from focusing on their own issues. I think it often is. Or it can be.
0: And also an avoidance of accepting the ways in which they fueled the addiction. Whether that's mistreating the kid. They have to, let's let's just say it's a situation where the parents did have a large hand in it. Let's say they even beat the kid. Let's say they did a lot of really unacceptable things, they're not going to want to say, it's a lot easier to say, oh, Tom, you know, you're such an addict, why don't you get your act straight, I give you money every month, get it together, they can wipe their hands and say, okay, I'm doing my part, it's just Tom just won't, but let's say Tom gets completely sober and says, mom, you know, it really hurt me when you hit me when I was a kid, Uh and that, I'm realizing, is one of the reasons that I began to drink, they probably don't want to hear that, because why wouldn't it have been brought up before? If it never got brought up before, their whole life, all of a sudden it's very unlikely that the mom would say, you're so right, even though we've never mentioned this, I take full responsibility for my part in this. Yeah. That's painful and hard and, and challenging yeah. and uncomfortable. And keep in mind, it's not, an, it's not an accident because in the situation we're talking about, the parent is unhealthy. Mm-hmm. So how are they going to be the model of health? when they've probably been behaving this way since before the kid was even born. Yeah. It's heavy.
1: It is. And, you know, when I even talk about family roles, I don't say it, for anyone listening, I'm not saying that in a sense that responsibility doesn't fall any less on the addict himself. You know, I think an addict needs to take responsibility and, and make decisions to change if it's causing problematic situations in their life. But it's just interesting that it can also be a symptom of family environment and such. I mean, I've seen people get clean and return to living with their family and and run into the same problems and trigger a relapse. I've never had a client, I'm not saying it doesn't exist,
0: but I've never had a client where they used simply for the enjoyment of using the truck. I've had many people say that to me. Yeah. And then many months later they see that I've even been convinced myself. Wow, this person seems so healthy. They must just really like this this drug. You know, it's it's no they're they're not running from pain, they're only seeking pleasure. I have not seen it once in multiple years. Yeah. Never. There's always something. And just to be clear, it's not always the parents or the family. Yeah. But Let's be real, the parents and family are usually the ones that we learn from, we learn how to be a person from. And it could be, responsibility could be on the kid if they, you know, let's say run away from home, or something like that, depending on the reason, this is such a complicated thing, I'm not trying to say anyone's always to blame for anything, but just to summarize, the addiction didn't come from nowhere. And mm-hmm. let's face it, the family unit is at least half of our psyche. It becomes psychic architecture in our mind. It's like hardware. Yeah. And so if your hardware has a problem in it, it's going to be hard to change it and fix it with the software. Mm-hmm. So long story short, a lot of problems are at least primed inside the family unit. For example, it could be something like, to be fair to parents, it could be something like, the dad was a master painter or something and never said anything to the son. And the son felt pressure to be that as well. So it doesn't even need to be spoken on purpose. Mm-hmm. The parents could also, as a as a counter example, be completely healthy but leave the kid with impressions. Like, I have to be this or that. And so high-achieving families often... Or sometimes we'll have addicts as well because they feel the pressure to be something. I think it's almost always rooted in self-esteem, ultimately.
1: Yeah. No, and... um, I... Like, before I even came here, I thought... You know, my problem was just with drugs and drugs alone. But since I've been here for almost five months and working with, um, you know, my therapist, quote-unquote, getting all to the deeper-rooted issues, thinking back on my upbringing... I'm realizing that um, because it's so cliche to say it drugs weren't my problem, they were my solution, but it was just a symptom of underlying issues. Like when I was raised, uh, um, I may have felt neglected as a child, and now later in life, I self seek validation and acceptance through others, and I have self esteem issues and this and that, and all these different things. So, um, and I think it for me it took at least 90 days of just going through like the motions and being clean for me to even to be able to address and notice that so now i can try and fix the way i've kind of wired my brain to perceive situations in the world around me for the last 35 years um can i get your thoughts or explanation on cognitive behavioral therapy and um, dialectic behavioral therapy maybe and um how successful the, you know it can be in to treat um, you know things like ADD, ADHD, or or maybe even borderline personality disorder. Yeah. Um, and what and how exactly one would even go about implementing that technique into their lives?
0: So dialectical behavioral therapy mm-hmm. is not something I know a lot about. I've mm-hmm. heard a little bit about it. CBT, I've heard a lot about. I think CBT is very effective at helping people to retrain habits. Mm -hmm. But to use a metaphor, I do think it's kind of like a software change. Mm -hmm. If you are obsessing, if you're having problems with thoughts you can't stop, if you have a negative outlook, things like that, I think the strategies of CBT can always be helpful. But I think that for an addict who's really suffering... I just can't see how CBT would really be enough. It could be very helpful. Like every time I think no one's ever going to love me, I think of a few things that counter that or things like that. I think it's a very powerful tool. But I don't think it's going to be enough to help repair their self-esteem alone. Um, And just to get back to something you were saying earlier, to say that drugs are the problem is like saying a bandage caused the wound. Yeah. Now, the drugs are like a dirty bandage that makes mm-hmm. the wound worse, and it causes so many problems in itself, and it's designed to help people forget themselves and forget what happened, that addicts oftentimes, in my experience, will erroneously assign the cause of all their issues to the drug abuse when the drug abuse has helped them to forget the original issue, which shows how effective the drugs really are. hmm and so to tie it all together, I just don't think that CBT is going to be enough. And you, talk, you talked about borderline personality mm-hmm. disorder. Well, personality, personality d- disorders, excuse me, are almost like a hardware issue where they're extremely, extremely pervasive inside the person, often started at a young age. Uh, they're really deep. And yeah. so I think it's pretty widely accepted that CBT will not be the right treatment for someone with a true blue personality disorder. It, that person needs years of intensive therapy, and even then it's very hard to change because something occurred in their life, in their mind, that led them to a place where it... It's not a passing issue, it's part of who they are at this point. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to take a heck of a lot more work. Yeah. Um, No disrespect to CBT, but I just don't think that's what CBT was ever meant for. What do you think it was meant for? I think it's meant for people who are having issues with their thinking and Mm -hmm. habits and want to change the way they think and process, but who have dealt with underlying profound emotional issues. For example, if someone comes in and they're having trouble smoking with smoking or they constantly have negative self-talk, CBT would be very effective. If they come in and they realize that they feel that their mother never really loved them and chose drugs over them, I don't think that CBT techniques are going to be the uh, uh, one, you know, I don't think CBT techniques alone are going to fix it. Uh I think they need something more in-depth than that to get to the root of those issues when the really profound pain. Mm -hmm. Maybe after they've dealt with it to a certain point. I think you need to be healthy to a certain point to get the proper benefit from CBT.
1: Okay. Um, I wanted to get into toxic relationships because what I've noticed every time I've been part of an AA or NA fellowship is that um, there's a lot of what they call 13th stepping going on. Yeah. A lot of hookups, a lot of people meeting people at meetings, co-ed meetings, and getting it and rushing into relationships and quickly finding out um, how problematic they can become. Um, and And I, my theory is that it's caused by a lot of things. Maybe it's a distraction or avoidance from focusing so much inward that they need to distract from that uncomfortable feeling um, first of all, do you think if someone is in early recovery, there should be, you know, like a um, a minimum time length that they should avoid relationships, and um, can you quickly go over what your definition of codependency is? Because it when when you had taught us. The definition that you explained. I'd never even thought about codependency in that yeah. manner.
0: Yeah. So to answer your first question, um, for the majority of people, the overwhelming majority, I think that staying away from romantic relationships for at least some decent amount of time mm-hmm. is a good idea. I can't really see any sort of a downside. Yeah. No matter who you are, if you can't be outside of a romantic relationship for let's even say a year yeah you might feel a bit lonely but you probably should be able to handle it yeah and if you can't something's wrong so if only for that reason like what why can't you you (laughs) know like really is it such a big deal and if it is then you probably really need to not do it yeah um so yeah i think most people should not and recovering addicts are in a hard situation because on one hand if they get with the person who's often referred to as the normie then they're with someone who uses, who drinks, they might have a beer, and then kiss you, and then you taste the beer, and it's just a just not a good thing. But then again, if you get with someone who's sober, it's hard because they might have six months sobriety. So there's pluses and minuses. I've been wrestling with this a lot in my own mind of what are you supposed to do when yeah. you want a relationship? Um, and then codependency. Okay, so I've wrestled with it for a long time. But to me, codependency means a relationship pattern in which one is unwilling or unable to set boundaries explicitly, which results in acting out implicitly using defense mechanisms, deep breath, (laughs) in a manner harmful to both parties. Uh So that's a mouthful, but it basically means it's a person who will not set their boundaries. Then their boundaries that were never spoken get violated, and then they get angry and upset and act out in ways that are not healthy, and it creates a circle of drama that never ends. If they just set the boundary originally explicitly, it would end the cycle, but for many reasons they're not willing to do that. And so both people participate in this relationship where boundaries are being violated and constantly shifting on both sides and the drama never ends. Uh, I think in a true codependent relationship, neither person truly, truly in their heart of hearts wants the drama to end or to find peace.
1: Um, So one other thing in regards to codependency, can you just quickly, briefly describe it, you know, the difference between toxic and vulnerable communication, um... You talked about the, the circle of drama. Yeah. Um, and could you briefly de- define or, or explain how people place themselves in roles as a victim, perpetrator,
0: rescue? Sure, or sure. So, um, sorry, the first question, well, I was focusing so hard on the last one.
1: Toxic and vulnerable. Toxic community. and
0: vulnerable, thank you. Yeah. So toxic and vulnerable communication. Toxic communication to me is primitive It's the verbal equivalent of throwing a punch, it is easy, um, you're basically trying to whip the other person into submitting to your point of view, Mm -hmm. to make them a sort of extension of you, to kind of bully them into believing what you believe. You're not really focusing on the truth, or a good relationship, or accomplishing anything, Basically, your only goal is to be right and to make the other person agree with you and possibly encourage them to agree with you in the future and punish them in the moment for not agreeing with you. One other thing that must be said is that someone communicating in a toxic manner, it's often not, they're not in great control of it. It's usually the result of being emotionally overwhelmed and lashing out because to not be toxic requires bearing the burden of the anxiety of the unresolved moment. For example, let's say someone um, thinks their husband might be cheating on them. A toxic way to go about it would be to say, I know you're cheating. That relieves them of the burden of having to not know whether they are or they're not. Mm -hmm. Vulnerable means that you are open and honest and you're not trying to win or dominate the other person. You're just trying to share what's inside of you in a dignified manner and trying to have a relationship that's harmonious with the other person. It's, you're truly trying to repair. And so find resolution. And find resolution if possible. Mm-hmm. But accept there might not be a quick resolution. Yeah. So to give the example of the person who thinks their husband is cheating, the toxic way is to say, I know you're cheating. The vulnerable way would be to say, I've become really worried about our relationship and to calmly explain that you don't know but you suspect that there might be another person and to ask them honestly what's going on Mm -hmm. which leaves you open hence the word vulnerable yeah that you're suffering anxiety and you're opening yourself up uh, rather than attacking and making everything kind of surface level and fake and then i think the other thing you mentioned was the drama circle or the drama triangle by Mm -hmm. dr cartman Mm -hmm. And that has... That's that's an upside-down triangle where the victim's at the bottom. The victim is at the bottom because the victim usually is thought of as having no power. And the perpetrator, a.k.a. the bad guy, is at the top in one corner. And the rescuer, a.k.a. the hero or good guy, is in the other corner. At first, people look at this and they think, well, this, this makes sense. You have the good guy, you have the bad guy, and you have the victim. You know, Batman comes with his cape and rescues the woman who's being held by the Joker, the Joker is the perpetrator, Batman's the hero, rescuer, and the woman is the victim. The problem with this is that, first of all, it's never that simple. None of us is ever only one of these things. None of us ever wears a cape. And it's kind of sad because the reason that we have Batman and movies and TV shows that reinforce these roles is because it is satisfying to see someone who's only evil or only good. Mm-hmm. But then we confuse the art with real life. And we think that there are Batmans, or that there are jokers, there are villains. And it's not that simple. And so I'll give you a quick example, which is, let's say a a father gets mad at his son. The son is the victim in this moment, and the mom might try to rescue him. And say to the dad, why are you being so mean to him? Stop picking on him. Mm -hmm. And then the dad might lash out at the mom. And now the dad, now the mom needs rescuing from the son. And then let's say both end up getting really mad at the mom. Now, you know, it can just keep going around and around and around in a circle, and it never ends, and it's just not true to think of ourselves as any one of these things, though it's kind of satisfying. Yeah. So I guess the theme of this conversation has been so far that it is really complicated. Mm-hmm. And it's the human desire to simplify things that I think has led to a lot of problems, and it's also led to extremely harsh judgment of addicts themselves. Because they have, in many people's eyes, become the official perpetrators in society. Mm-hmm. So that's just a quick example of how the drama triangle is not it's not good
1: to think of yeah. things in that way. If only it were so simple. Yeah, yeah. It seems like everything is much more complex than people give credit for. It. Yeah. Um, in, in your communications class, it's really opened my eyes to using the art of communication in a way I've never really thought about before. Usually when I've been in confrontational um, moments with people engaging with them, I have caught myself being reactionary and projecting the kind of energies that they are projecting onto me. Yeah. And um, it's been really helpful to try, especially when looking back on arguments I've had with ex-girlfriends, seeing how it, it could have gone better. Um, but, I mean, I guess that has mostly to do with changing to a more vulnerable communication style.
0: Easier said than done, but yes. Yeah. Essentially, that is what
1: needs to happen. Um, is there any kind of guidelines to follow when even attempting to do such a thing? Because it, it's, it's like... You know the the um, the times we've done like role playing or stuff in class. It, it I've I mean it throws it takes me completely. You know I'm like off guard. and just like whoa. This is intense. It's been. It, it just feels very intense to try and even think of the right words at the moment, when I'm so used to going. And projecting just on an emotional level and saying, okay, you're making me feel this way and I'm going to make you know that I'm feeling this way, you
0: know? Yeah, I mean, what I say in class is what results do you want? Basically, Mm -hmm. what do you want to happen? What tools do you have? What can you actually use inside of yourself or, you know, um, what do you, what can you actually do to try to get there? Mm -hmm. And how do you help everybody save face, which just means don't shame everybody, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, first of all, you have to believe that the person you're talking to is decent. Yeah. Has decency in them. Mm-hmm. And if you really don't believe that at all, you really got to question why you're talking to them at all. Yeah. You probably believe, even if they're your you know, mother or father-in-law who you really, who you really dislike, there's got to be something about it. Somewhere. You know, so it's almost having faith that the truth will be better. Mm-hmm. That it will set you free. That you have nothing to hide. But to be honest with you, every time I handle a tough situation in a calm way, I feel nauseous. I feel bad inside. I feel crazy. I feel like <laughs> I want to latch out and yeah. fight or yell or whatever or run. But I've come to regard that as just part of the fun, you know? That that's part it's like
1: of like a mental game of chess you're playing yeah. with them. It's very, very challenging.
0: It's a mental game of chess, but... Eventually, you reach it. Honestly, it just takes practice. Number one, it takes a lot of self esteem, takes some amount of trust in the other person, but ultimately, it takes a resolute, profound choice inside yourself Mm -hmm. that you're just done with lashing out at people. It's kind of like punching people when they make you mad. You just have to decide in advance that you're not willing to fight, and you have to philosophically understand that letting the other person make you someone you're not is you losing immediately, yeah. if there is a winning and losing. And so, you know, it's a very good question, but it takes a lot of toughness inside of yourself. I think it's the real toughness, as you've experienced. is yeah. taking it easy. And I guess I would ask you, you know, having you seen you do it in class, and maybe the first time it's a bit rough, and then second and third, you know, we'll try the situation again. Mm-hmm. Just to be clear to everybody, what we do is we think of a really tough situation... And then we pretend it's real, and then we will act it out in class and see how the person is able to diffuse it in a vulnerable way. I guess I'd ask you, what do you experience the times when you are able to stay calm?
1: Um, in class or just in general?
0: Both, but mainly class.
1: In class, it's, um, it's a little more controlled because we can pause and analyze the situation. The last time I've even attempted to... Um, Use vulnerable communication. It was with someone I was um, kind of in an open relationship with, yeah. and uh, it was it was a little easier because it was um, not in person. It was over social media, yeah. yep. so it, it gave me uh, it it gave me an opportunity to kind of shield myself and choose my words wi- like more wisely. I feel like when I I'm more articulate when I type or write yeah. than when I'm just. Battling in person but the the what i remember was even though they were attacking me being uh, being malicious and confrontational and toxic and i kept trying to come at them with more vulnerable um and of approach they I, i'll never forget it but they were like oh you're being so toxic right now yeah. and then they accused me of being toxic while they were attacking me. And and it just, it just, um, it kind of blew me away. And like you, how you were referring to earlier, it made me realize this is not the kind of person I, I want to surround in my life. Yeah. Because, um, but yeah, we were in early recovery together and, um, and so we were both in uncomfortable places. And I think that individual, she lashed out at me yeah. over, um, Something that was not as big of a deal. I mean, it was over me relapsing and being honest yes. to her about it. But um, it was just an eye opener that even if I stay in a vulnerable form of communication and they and they just keep lashing out, it's made me realize. Okay, so I need to be really more picky and choosy of who I let into exactly. my life, exactly, and how I, you know, it would, and identifying those red flags and then being able to set up healthy boundaries um that's been the my biggest challenge in general you know especially when i'm self-seeking validation or i've done it on such a subconscious level now i've been having to be more aware uh when i'm community especially with a female or something that um you know we're talking on a more intimate level if i see a red flag pop up i need to be very make myself more aware of that of overlook it and then communicate the qualities or standards yeah. that I want in a, yeah. in a yeah. partner, so that's just been my experience and, um, that's why I'm really thankful that this class exists and that you were able to teach it before, yeah. um, you're transitioning, um,
0: and something real quick is just that the explosive conversation that we're talking about, the one where someone's toxic towards you, not always, but usually I'd say over 90% of the time could have been avoided, yeah, had you dealt with the situation or noticed earlier. Mm -hmm. I think that what's hard is that communicating is the final thing in a very long chain. It's kind of like buying a burger or something, you know? As if that's the whole deal. No, they had to ship the meat, they had to kill the cows, they had to package it, they had to cook it. Communicating is merely representing what's happening inside. And so if we don't know who we are extremely well, Mm -hmm. if we haven't practiced, We have to first know who we are inside to even communicate it. So I think that the problem is that this begins really deep and ends with the words coming out of our mouth, but that's only like 1% of it. 99% is happening internally, and then at the very last moment it's being communicated. And one final thing I want to say about it before we move on is I've worked on it for a long time, and I used to not be very good at it, and the way I've gotten good at it ultimately is I just... I know who I am, and I understand the situation I'm in, and so I can't be bullied into questioning whether I'm right or wrong about Mm. my own belief about something. And I think that's what happens to people, is they... Communicating in a vulnerable way, it's almost like a sick joke, is just saying what you really think without stabbing. Yeah. Just saying what you actually think, but in a calm way when they're not being calm. And so what I found is that you just need to find a way to have the strength to say what you think and i think a lot of people become toxic because even though they think they're right they believe perhaps rightfully so that the other person's going to bully them into submission or to accepting their viewpoint if they don't lash out yeah so i have the confidence that my viewpoint i'm not going to budge on something that's really important to me yeah and they can yell and scream but at the end of the day i'm i'm me and i'm not going to let them
1: change that so yeah and i've known i what i've noticed is also with a lot of individuals who've you know been institutionalized and grew up in like the politics of that environment they also have a fear that if they allow someone to to speak to them in that manner without yeah bouncing the ball back to their court they have a fear that other people will see that as a form of weakness and then take advantage yeah. of them.
0: We're in a culture where emotions are considered to be weakness, mm-hmm. and that's just insane. Yeah. But it's hard because if you're in jail for 30 years and you're in a situation where you might very well die if you say the word emotion, yeah. it's hard to have somebody come out of jail and say, well, that's over now, time to be really gentle and and soft. So... You know, I also understand that it's a it's a long road and it's it's that's why we don't call the addict the perpetrator. Because guess what? They were also victims and they were also rescuers.
1: Yeah. That's yeah, that is really fascinating. And I and what I've also noticed is you can get the same message across just if you use a different tone or a different body posture. Correct.
0: You can use the same words even.
1: Yeah. It's you know like how you actually present them or project it's them. It's
0: like saying to a, a mm-hmm. husband or wife, you don't love me anymore, versus you don't love me anymore. Yeah. Completely different reaction. You can feel it inside of yourself. So it does become kind of like a chess game. And the more you work on it, the more you see, oh yeah, they were really loud and proud and it made me uncomfortable. But you start to see, you don't have to act on that. You don't have to actually act on it. Mm-hmm. I feel the same thing I felt when I was five. <laughs> I just listen to a different part of myself
1: yeah. when I respond. Um, I wanted to kind of shift um, topics into more of a societal aspect. Um, because, I mean, what I've noticed, especially in, in uh, America, is that drugs are becoming more rampant their potency is increasing, overdose rates are increasing, um, needle-borne disease rates are increasing. Do you think there's certain policies being implemented within um, our laws and structures in the, of that variety that
0: may be kind of helping perpetuate? Yeah, for sure, issue? for sure. I mean, to keep it as a general concept First of all, viewing addicts as criminals is criminal. Yeah. You know, like, if I could change one thing, it would be that we, yes, we will probably never know exactly why, whatever it is. But somebody who, especially if they're buying it with their own money, someone who goes to work and comes home and smokes crack should not, I don't think they should be arrested and go to prison.
1: Yeah.
0: I don't think you should be arrested for harming yourself. Mm hmm if they stole, if they did this, that, or the other thing, okay, now now we're getting somewhere. But the addict needs help. And the addict in some way, if you think about it philosophically, is already being punished by the use and probably already has been punished. In the overwhelming majority of the situations, the addict has already been punished. So let's take a really clear-cut one. Let's say you were born addicted to a drug because your mom was using when you were in the womb, and then you start using the drug, and then we put you in jail, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. So I'm not trying to say the addict is completely off the hook, but I don't think that we should reinforce this message that addicts are selfish and lazy. Who would wake up and say, I have a great family and job and life, but you know what? I'm just going to smoke crack and ruin everything as if being on the street homeless is going to be the easy way out or something. Yeah. That's not easy, actually. I don't think I would last a day. Mm-hmm. So looking at addicts as if they need to be punished, as if causing them suffering is the solution, yeah. is a bit backwards because the suffering led them to the use. And as we know, unfortunately, there are drugs in jail. Yeah. And so you go to jail, a newbie, and you come out a pro. You come out an absolute pro. So I think that drug addicts need to be rehabilitated, excuse me, and be shown some reasonable amount of kindness. So that's policy number one, is just anything that, any policy that is under the umbrella of punishing addicts and treating them as selfish members of society. It's, you know, it's almost like this, this, this pervasive attitude of, we would all love to be addicts, too. But we just have to do our lives, unfortunately, as if, we, you know, it's like people who are extremely obese, as if we would all love to be obese, but we have too much self-control. Of course not. Of course not. So, yeah, just to to bring it home, not punishing addicts, having jobs that people can get who are felons. If you've paid your debt to society, you should be able to get a job. Um, And just not treating addicts as... You know, it's like the quote I talked about in class, I am human, nothing human is alien to me. Not treating addicts as aliens, but as humans that are real and suffering. So basically giving them compassion and trying to offer real drug rehabilitation programs for people of all ages, take the stigma out of it, um, have widely available treatment, and just hands. We don't need to necessarily drag everybody, but there should be... Hands of kindness reaching out to them that they can take.
1: I definitely agree, um, but at the on the same token, I've I've struggled with this dichotomy type of issue where a lot of recovering addicts say some, uh, expri- terms like I had to hit rock bottom to realize I needed to change, um, and I and I kind of feel like well, first of all, I feel like there is no rock bottom because I feel you can always sink a little bit yeah. deeper. I think rock bottom is when you're when you're dead. Um, but I do feel, at least for myself, I can't speak for everyone else, that I had to lose a certain percentage of things in my life to make the conscious decision that I needed to get help outside of myself. Um, but I also feel that a lot of institutions of varying forms are not very beneficial to the addict in general.
0: No, and um, just to be clear, in the world I'm talking about, you'd still lose everything. Because yeah. I'm not saying that they're going to give you a house and a car and everything. Yeah. I'm just saying that they're going to put you in a program instead of put you straight in jail. You might end up in jail anyway, though, yeah. with the type of person you're talking about. So there'll still Definitely. be plenty of opportunity to hit rock bottom.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Um, I guess when I say those kind of things, I've, I have i think about the harm reduction programs in like Portugal, Switzerland and other areas where they actually provide addicts with, um, government issue shots of heroin for opiate addicts, which has done incredible things with lowering crime, lowering, lowering disease rates and stuff like that. Um, and I'm all for that. I think that's a great thing and it's a great kind of social experiment. That's had amazing results. um, but I always try to look things at those types of things as subjectively as possible. Where you know some people, I um, might consider that not myself, but some may be say that as enabling them to stay, just like someone is stuck on a methadone program, I guess. Um, and I, and also, I mean, I could never, as much as I would like to, I could never envision. United States implementing a harm reduction program, a program of, to that extremity? Yeah 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 for various reasons, privatized prisons, yeah, um, yeah. all those things. Um, but do you think there is kind of a, a balance that needs to be made where they ha- what could essentially um, kind of lower addiction rates in America would be something like that? You know, I don't... It's
0: so counter to the culture we have here. I get why they're doing it. You know, we sell we sell alcohol.
1: Yeah. It's
0: safe. Would it be a better world if we didn't allow alcohol? You know? Well, we saw what happened at Prohibition. We saw what happened then. On the other hand, do I want people being able to buy crack at their local liquor store? Yeah. This is a tough thing, you know? Yeah. And I think that a good place to start in this country would be... Just not treating drug use as a criminal act alone. The effect it would have on people's psyches. I'm not a criminal.
1: Yeah.
0: It would reduce the amount of violence. It wouldn't be like drug addict equals person in jail equals... You know, it it would be kind of separate from being a violent criminal at least. Definitely. And it would also reduce the number of times where, let's say, your mom or dad is a drug addict. Now they're not in jail for 20 years for, let's say, smoking marijuana, and they yeah. can be home to raise you, so you don't become a drug addict. So I think that that one change alone, I'm sort of dodging the question a little bit, but... No, I, that, I
1: totally get
0: That same. one change alone to just make it... I'm not saying they need to be selling people crack by the U.S. government, but just... <laughs> just it's like if I punch myself in the face and I get taken to jail, that's how it kind of seems to me. Yeah. Like, if I'm selling drugs, all right, all right, all right, but... I shouldn't be taken in jail because I'm punching myself in the face.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think the illegality of drugs in general incentivizes criminals to move towards that illicit black market anyway because it becomes more profitable. I think
0: it does, but also I always want to bear in mind are, are we really comfortable with... You know, this is a slippery slope because it leads us to selling all drugs legally yeah and though I understand the arguments behind that Mm -hmm. it's really hard imagine if you had a kid who goes I'm gonna go buy some meth at the store just a little bit because it's Friday Mm -hmm. and I don't know maybe it's because I was born and raised here but on one hand yes when drugs become legal gangs cartels it takes the money away from them but on the other hand it just is it's so hard
1: yeah, no, I, I appreciate that you, that you vocalize both s- extremities of that yeah. situation because I think a lot of policy makers and politicians in this country avoid this topic entirely because um, they don't know where that balance lies on the yeah. spectrum. A perfect example is
0: when there are programs that go to Skid Row, let's say, and give them clean needles and that's it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's a sort know, of American
0: changed. compromise...
1: Safe injection sites are just becoming a thing. You
0: know, that's something that is a little easier to wrap our heads around in this country. It's a little easier. It's like we're not giving them drugs. We're just making sure they don't get AIDS, for example. It's kind of hard to argue with the clean needles, although I know a lot of people do not like that program, and I totally understand why they don't. I certainly don't have all the answers. But um, stuff like that is more appealing to me. I haven't made up my mind completely, but a clean needle program... It's more appealing trying to make it safer at least. Because one of the biggest problems is when drug use is criminalized. Let's say you're a drug addict and you use meth and your meth dealer beats you senselessly. You won't want to call the cops. And so I don't like that drug users feel separated and shunned by law enforcement, schools, they kind of, and understandably so, feel the need to hide, and that are oh, yeah. criminals, and it creates this world where violent crime
1: and drugs are one and the same, and this just should not be the same thing. Yeah. Well, I know, and I was just about to say that I think the criminality aspect of addiction in general, it pushes addicts into the shadows yes. and makes them fearful of, of coming out admitting yes. they have a problem in the first place.
0: Exactly, which only makes their emotional issues and self-esteem issues even worse, yeah. and it makes it a taboo thing, Yeah, you know? It exactly. makes it taboo, and being a drug user... It shouldn't be taboo at all. It should be like having any other illness, which are also taboo. If yeah. you say that you're... Actually, I take it back somewhat. If you say that you're a drug addict, that's more acceptable to a lot of people than saying that you're depressed.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So people who need help need help. And we shouldn't be punishing them for suffering a lot. Yeah, We shouldn't praise people for using drugs, but it it, it we just live in this society where people suffer, and then they try to use drugs to feel better, and then the society throws them in jail to punish them. Mm-hmm. And obviously they're not going to come out of jail going, oh, yeah, now I see that drugs are illegal. What was I thinking? I need to totally stop that and be a productive member of society. Now that I know that jail is behind it, I'll stop. That's that's just pain. That's just inflicting pain. Yeah.
1: So. Yeah, and along with that social stigma, I've seen especially on the internet, you know, like vloggers or people and make make these insane ranting videos about how addiction's a choice and not a disease and Facebook posts where people who have never understood addiction or identified as addicts yeah. are are kind of just spouting like just yeah. be, what I consider just nonsense about, you know, I think it's it's kind of a hybrid where it's it's the disease of choice. That's how yeah. I like to put it. But um If it was, if addiction was just a choice, then so many people would just choose not to do it.
0: It technically is a choice in that it is, I I understand the spirit of what they're saying, that it is your body and mind, and you put the alcohol to your lips, you know, you're actually doing it. It's Mm -hmm. not like a zombie's controlling you. But on the other hand, I'm more with your point, which is, why would anybody choose to do this? It's back to my prior point, as if we all wish we could be addicts. (laughs) Yeah. But, of course, we can, as, as if that's the ideal. It's funny. It's almost like taking the perspective that being a drug addict is glamorous and awesome. And we all wish we could be. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's clearly not a choice like um, whether you want uh, coffee or tea is a choice. It's clearly not a choice like what am I going to have for lunch, which is how they make it sound. Who on earth would choose that? Yeah. I mean, come on now. I think those people are misguided, but they're trying to.
1: So I think they're sh- trying to simplify a complex or They're
0: trying people. to simplify it, and they perhaps are trying to balance out what they see is the culture of catering to addicts too much. Yeah. Like it's all you know. Like a lot of people will say. Um, it's like tough love. Yeah, like people will say to me sometimes, "I am going to give that up to God. I'm going to let God solve it." Mm-hmm. And I understand where they're coming from. But sometimes, if they say that all the time about virtually everything in their life, I'll say to them, "Is God gonna brush your teeth?" You know. So that's yeah. kind of if, if I'm gonna be an an apologist for those people taking that hard line, kind of cruel outlook. Yeah. I think they perhaps are reacting to this idea that I'm an addict. I can't. I, I can't do anything. But to be fair to those who are addicts listening, that's not what I've experienced. I've never heard that myself. You know. Yeah. So. It's really uh, unfortunate that they do that. It doesn't solve anything. I think a more helpful thing would be to say it's really difficult, but it's also possible to become sober. Yeah. Why not just say that? Mm -hmm. Speaking of toxic communication, what they're doing is very toxic. And (laughs) what they should say if they were being vulnerable is, I'm frustrated at how often it seems like this is outside of people's control. Absolutely. As Mm -hmm. if it's impossible. But I think there needs to be once again a balance between the addict's responsibility to work hard on it and change, which is where the helping hands come in. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's face it, if the culture were different, people would be likely to admit it sooner. So that's not good. Um, And quite frankly, on the the deepest philosophical level, it's not of utmost importance to me why they use their suffering, they need help. Even if, and I don't believe this, but even if they were choosing it like they choose to have a sandwich for lunch, still need help. Yeah. What, it's not. I don't think it's philosophically appropriate for us to tell other people what's their choice and what's not. You yeah. have no idea. I. I think if we became another person, we'd be absolutely blown away by how different it really is. Definitely. And so I think it's an extremely arrogant thing to say I'm not even going to say that I know how bread tastes to someone else. <laughs> Clearly it doesn't taste the same cuz we don't all like the same foods. Yeah. So it's like saying to someone, "What do you mean you don't like you don't like lasagna?" Ever think about the fact it doesn't taste the same to you? <laughs> so, you know, I can we can barely agree on what the colors look like. Yeah. I'm not going to tell people that I know that their soul is weak and as if they're so what are we to think here that they're either born weak, in which case it's not their fault or that they're in so much psychological distress that they can't get out, so it's it's tough.
1: Yeah, um, one, one of the last things I wanted to ask you about is um, I've noticed and researched a lot of upper-class or very expensive inpatient programs, have, their statistic rates show a high recidivism rate where a lot of addicts relapse and yeah. return back to a program, um, do you think that in some cases that might be intentionally by design for profit margins? With more, and what I've also noticed is like some of the most expensive inpatient programs, like in Malibu, and and I'm not talking about all of them, but some of them I've noticed. The more money you pay, the more likely you'll be able to be prescribed things like Adderall or yeah. methadone or Suboxone. Yeah. Do you think that's problematic, or do you think that's become a problem in our society today, or even...
0: The high-cost, fancy rehabs? Yeah. So, look, I don't know anything about this personally, but based on what you're saying, my my gut instinct is, number one, those who go there are wealthy, and they can afford to be addicts, so to speak. Yeah. It's less likely that people, when you have a lot of money, people tend to look at you like you're on top of your game. So if I have $10 in the bank and I'm driving a Ferrari, Mm -hmm. it's unlikely someone's going to be like, Hey, you look a little tired. Are you really feeling okay? I'm going to say, What are you talking about? I'm doing great. They're not going to be thinking that. They're going to be thinking that I'm on top of my game. So they can have the luxury, I think, to go back and forth, if that makes sense. It's a little easier to hide it. They can hire lawyers, they can hire whatever they need, they can. They have a lot more freedom. Sure. A- another element is that I think places like that provide, um, look, I'm not saying that they're not good, I've never been to one, I don't know that much about it, I'm sure that many people recover. But if I'm going to go with your sort of thesis here and try to explain why that might be the case, assuming that they're not as effective, that's a big assumption here, Yeah. I would say that a second reason is that... Um, they're probably being catered to in a way that's unrealistic. Mm -hmm. Life's not going to be like that probably after they're out. So it gives them this false idea of what it will be like. And then it's probably a letdown (laughs) afterward when they're alone. Another thing is that, to be honest, I, I just don't know why it's so expensive. Like, I don't necessarily that sounds fine for some people it's a free country you can pay for whatever you want and I really hope it works for everybody but in my humble opinion recovery is mostly about having a safe environment to work on your emotions with other people uh, with trained experts and I don't know why you would need so much money that would also really limit the kinds of people who are there which I think would weaken the effectiveness as well Mm -hmm. Um, and I also to be quite honest just think that it it sounds like there probably is a lot of money to be made and I'm sure some places are great and some I I, I personally don't think they're doing it on purpose to get people to come back but I do question how much they're catering to the addicts there to make them feel good when I think the addicts should be catering to the people on the site who are professionals to help them. You know what I mean? If anyone's going to be uncomfortable, it should probably be the addicts Mm -hmm. who are trying to adjust to the regular society. But I just have a sneaking suspicion that there might be a little bit too much catering to the addicts, too much trying to make people feel good, when a lot of recovery is not feeling good, and a lot of drug use began to feel good. So unfortunately, recovery involves oftentimes feeling worse before you feel better. And if you're paying a million a year, it's going to be hard to tell someone to suck it up for a little bit.
1: Yeah. Very good point. Um, we're at just over an hour, um, so I was going to wrap this up. But okay. Is there any parting words you want to say to anyone listening who may be struggling with a substance abuse issue themselves, and also to anyone listening who may be young and feel the pressure... To the pressures to experiment with drugs,
0: like yeah, um, yes, I do. To to the young people feeling pressures to experiment with drugs, it, it, you really have to look inside, and and talk with people you trust and do what you feel you need to do, mm-hmm. even if it's just drinking. You have to you have to really know who you are, and if you want to use drugs to feel better about yourself, or even more to have other to feel that others like you more it will not work ever. I've never seen it work. It will make you feel better temporarily, but it is not going to solve any problems in the long run. I guess another thing I'd like to say in closing is just I am a counselor. I treat people. I just want everyone listening to know that you, talk, you mentioned the human condition before. Yes. And I want everyone to know that life is really hard and painful. You don't see it on TV. You don't see it in movies because we usually go to them to get away. Or it's a horror movie and it's just ridiculously painful to yeah. a point that you can't relate. Yeah. And so I want everyone listening to know that I suffer often. I, I consider myself to be a reasonably healthy person. I'm pretty happy. But I suffer. I think if we could see just because someone's sitting at a at a cafe drinking coffee and they look peaceful on their face, it doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. Most people are suffering and life is really hard and painful. I think it's worth it. And I think that things get worse before they get better. And in time, it is totally, it will be a lot better and a a lot more manageable once you get past these acute problems. But basically, I just want people to know that life entails a lot of pain people don't usually talk about it, but I wish people could see the internal lives of others and see how not rosy it really is often and how much we all have to go through. And I don't want people to feel that they're bearing a burden alone, whether they're an addict or not. I don't care if you've been sober your whole life. There's a lot of burdens to bear, and we often bear it silently and by ourselves and bearing shame. But I want people to take heart and know that no. We're all bearing it together. And whatever you're feeling, someone else is feeling it too right now. And you have no reason to be ashamed. You're probably doing your best, and you've probably gone through a lot. But it's no reason to stop fighting. And um, I know it's the hardest thing in the world to ask for help or be vulnerable after years of trying to appear strong and keep it together. But I think it's the strongest thing that you can do.
1: Wow. That was really eloquently put. Um, I just want to thank you, Jesse, for even taking the time to to come on um, on here and say and to discuss everything you have. Uh, your um, your my interactions with you here have been just insanely beneficial, uh, and it's helped me look at my past and you know how I even perceive the world in a in a much more beneficial way. So I appreciate that. Um, Do you want to just? um, Can you even touch on where you're gonna, what your plans are after you transition out of this program? Yeah, I mean,
0: basically, I'm going to continue working with underserved populations. Mm -hmm. uh, Some of whom will be people who abuse substances. Some of whom will not. Um, I'm just base. I'm very passionate about people and why they do what they do, Mm -hmm. and I have a lot of love for people, Mm -hmm. and so I just want to. Help, help us all just be in a little bit of a better world. And I know what it is to suffer in my own way. Mm-hmm. And I wanna spread the message to people that uh, we are all in this together.
1: Are you still um, pursuing schooling for um, licensing and stuff? To- yeah,
0: so basically I'm going to have the doctorate if all goes well in about six weeks. And then I will pursue licensure after that, of course, yes. I and I'll probably have a private practice and also work in a community mental health setting mm-hmm. and probably eventually down the road write in, in some capacity concerning psychology.
1: I'd really look if you do that, I would really look forward yeah. to yeah. seeing that and uh, always promote it. Anything you have, if, especially if you were had any writings that would be Yeah. After yeah,
0: I appreciate uh, the feedback that you have given me. And um, I just want to say, too, that helping people like yourself helps me, too. It's not why I'm here, but I'm in it, too. So connecting with other people, I think, is a great mess. A great, mess, a great, mess a great I don't mess.